Um, last week, Bill looked at the idea that we, so we began this series on Christ, and he looked at this idea that we have a simple gospel, that the idea that it can be summarized simply, uh, and then it can be responded to simply, the idea that we are just to believe and then live in light of that in obedience. Um, but as he showed last week, it is by no means a thin gospel. It is very rich. It is very robust that we can always and continually plumb the depths of scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. And we learn new facets and we get new nuggets. And we continue to understand the depths of God as we study it. And so building off of that idea that it's not a thin gospel, even though it is simple, uh, we're looking at this week the idea that Christ is both fully God and fully man, which in fancy theological terms is just called the hypostatic union. So with that, I want to bring into this discussion, uh, along with a simple gospel but not a thin gospel, this idea of theological precision. Now why I think that needs to be brought in is the idea that if we look around at our current culture, uh, I think we would agree that it's becoming increasingly hostile to a Christian worldview, a Christian perspective, and it is not liking the fact that we are proclaiming the truths of this gospel. It wants us to be quiet. It wants us to mind our own business. It wants us to continue in our own little subculture and leave them alone to do what they want to do. Uh, also, we know that our enemy, that Christ promised that there would be false teachers, there would be false messiahs who want to creep into the church and want to distort, who want to destroy, who want to syncretize and blend together false gospels with this true gospel. So the why is it's critically important for us to know our Bibles, to know the gospel, to know the scriptures well. That's really all that I mean by the idea of theological precision, is that we need to be people of the book who are constantly saturating ourselves in this book, so that way we can uh, fight against, we can deter, we cannot blend together any of these false gospels with the true scripture, uh, scriptural teaching. So basically it's just knowing our Bibles well. Now, also, I don't want this idea of theological precision to be intimidating. If we think about this in other spheres of our lives, we think about it with our, our spouses. We don't, uh, you know, put our spouse to the side and we study them for 10, 20, 30 years. We get a master's degree in, in understanding how they work. They're kind of uh, triggers that get them fired up. We don't, we don't stand off to the side aloof before then we dive into the action of loving them, of serving them, of being married to them. No, from day one, we are both serving, loving, and, and, and um, encouraging our spouses, but at the same time, we're growing in a knowledge and a precision of understanding them. That everyone who's been married to their spouse for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years would admit that they know them better now today than they knew them on the day of their wedding. Now, again, this is the same thing with a parent and a child. When you're a parent, you don't put your kid in some weird, you know, school or incubator, and then you look at them and you watch them for 5, 10, 15 years until you kind of understand, okay, I think I'm starting to get this kid's personality. I'm starting to realize how they function. Now I'm going to jump in and begin to parent them because I have this expertise in them. No. From day one, you're taking care of your kid, you're serving your kid, you're loving your kid, you're learning things about your kid, and then using that knowledge to then improve your parenting. Same thing with friendship. From day one, you are being a friend, you're serving, you're loving, you're encouraging, you're learning more about them, and then that stuff you learn is then shaping how you love them, how you are friends with them. When they tell you, I don't like this thing that you're doing, you then are apologizing for that, and then you take that knowledge and you correct it. 
And so we understand that in all these spheres of life, whether it's even our vocations, we improve as employees. We improve in the knowledge of where we're working, and then that shapes and molds better how we're actually doing the work. And so these two things work together. And so the same thing should be in our understanding of theological precision. We don't then just have to stand to the sidelines for 10, 5, 10, 15 years to get this level or, or standard of knowledge of God and theology that we then can then engage in the mission of the church. No, from day one, when you repent and believe and you follow Christ, you are then part of the church and you are part of the mission of the church and then you push into that. And then as you grow in the knowledge of God, as you grow in theological precision, that hones your ability to then do and serve God better. And so, again, don't let this idea intimidate you. Don't let this term hypostatic union intimidate either. Really, this is, you know, it's just a way for theologians to sound smart is you take whenever these terms were coined, the common language of the day. So the New Testament was written in Greek. And so the common word for Greek person was hypostasis, or so where we get our word hypostatic. So really all they're saying is there's a union in the person. But it just sounds cooler, it sounds fancier to keep the Greek uh, word that they had used way back when and just to bring it through church history and then so that way I can stand on stage and say hypostatic union in, in the original Greek, you know, if you were you know, like me. But no, so don't be intimidated by it. It's just a term. We want to know the concept. You don't need to know the term. And so last week, Bill had touched on uh, Jesus talking to his disciples in Matthew 16, where he brought to them this question, who is Jesus? And really, that's kind of the, the overarching question of this entire series. Who is Jesus? And so his disciples had given a bunch of answers of what uh, the crowds and the people were saying, and then so he then turns the question to them, and, and as you remember the story, Peter says, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. And so Peter's answer to this question is, is essentially redemptive historical. He's kind of looking at the storyline of the Bible. He's, he's a good Jew. He knows Genesis to Malachi, and he's understanding what this Old Testament is pointing towards, this idea of a Messiah, the seed of the woman, this chosen one, this anointed one, who is the son of the living God. We see that sonship theme goes from Adam through the nation of Israel. God calls the nation of Israel his firstborn son. In Exodus, he also calls the Davidic king, who then is the, the premier Israelite, his son. And so Peter's making this connection on the Bible's own, own terms through the history, through the progress of redemption. So this is kind of what's called today biblical theology. Is the idea is that you're following the storyline of the Bible. You're trying as best as possible to use its own terms, to interpret it as it's structured in the story. And so that's biblical theology. What we're kind of getting at today, this idea of the hypostatic union, fully God, fully man, is more in the realm of systematic theology, which Systematic theology is, is not opposed to biblical theology. It takes all of biblical theology, all of the, the scripture and the data that you can gather, and then you put it together in terms of how to synthesize it and make it cohesive and a whole. And a lot of times you're addressing issues that arise in the culture. And so some of what we'll see today, we're addressing issues that were arising in, in the third century, in the fourth century, in the fifth century, that the church needed to then come together and have a kind of cohesive grammar that would explain all of these things. And so that's kind of where we're going to be at today. And our starting point is John uh, 1.14, where we read that the word became flesh 
and he dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son, or the only begotten Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so that, that, word, that phrase, became flesh, is this incarnation. This is what we're kind of honing in on today, and we're hoping to unpack it, to explain it, and ultimately to treasure it as a needed scriptural truth and good news for us today. But we see at the beginning of that verse that the subject is the word. And so right from the beginning, we see that we need to have a right and proper understanding of the Trinity before you can dive into this question of Christology and Jesus being fully God and fully man. So backing up in John chapter 1, we see that in the beginning, so John is bringing our minds back to Genesis chapter 1. He's saying, in the beginning was the word, that the word was already there before Genesis chapter 1 began. And this word was with God. So there's a distinction between what we would understand as the Father. This word is distinct from the Father, but this word is also God. This word was God. So there is a complete equality with the Father, a distinction, but an equality. And so we see that the subject of becoming flesh is God the Son. It is the second person of the Trinity, eternally begotten, generated from the Father. It is his person who adds to himself a human nature. It is not the Father, it is not uh, the Holy Spirit, it is the Word who became flesh. And so one, one more thing, and this is a bit technical, and I apologize if this, some of this kind of comes across matter of fact, like I'm just kind of blowing through a lot of technical things that are important to know, um, but they're important to know. So. Uh, so the idea with the Trinity and crucial to Christology is this uh, two terms that the church developed that they use to kind of help explain this. Well, explain it in the terms of these are the guardrails. You can't fully understand the Trinity. You can't fully understand how the Word became flesh. But these are kind of the parameters that they set. It's the idea of a person-nature distinction. And so the idea is person isn't used the way we typically use it today. So we use person to kind of talk about an entire human individual being. Or we'll use it in terms of someone's personality traits. But that's not how it's being used in the church. The idea of person is being used just to simply point out the subject, the I. And then the nature is kind of the stuff uh, of a being that kind of R.C. Sproul puts it, the stuff. I like how and he really grits when he says it. Um, and so the way I kind of make sense of this in my brain, and I hope this makes sense in your brain, is if you can travel back in time with me to your English classes in school and when you're learning basic sentence structure. So you've got your subject and you've got your predicate which make up a sentence. The subject is how uh, theologians are using the word person. It's the I in the sentence. It's the individual you're talking about. It's the acting subject. And then the predicate, which consists of the verb and everything else, is how the word nature is being used. The idea of nature is that it's, that's where the mind's at, that's where the will is at, that's where all of these attributes exist. That's how we're kind of breaking this down. So if we think of the Trinity, and we'll say, as our nature, is all-powerful. God is all-powerful in his very being. We know in the Trinity that we have three subjects. So we've got the Father, we've got the Son, and we've got the Holy Spirit. The Father is all-powerful, the Son is all-powerful, the Spirit is all-powerful, but we still only have one sentence predicate. We have one nature, but we have three eyes that then exist within that nature. Again, we can't understand it fully, but this is essentially how the church is, is breaking down this language so they can understand it. And this will hopefully make sense 
as we dive a little deeper uh, into Christology and Christ being fully God, fully man. Okay. Whew. That was a lot. I am behind schedule. Terrible. All right. So we're going to look at Colossians 1 and verse 15 to 20. This is going to be where we're spending the bulk of our time. And I want to get a little bit of running start. So Paul uh, kicks off this letter. Uh, he does his normal thing. I'm you know, really thankful for you. I'm praying for you. You guys are awesome. And then I'm going to correct you and slap you in the head a bunch of times later in the letter. But that's Paul. Uh, so he begins in verse 9. He says, look, I heard about your faith, and we're thanking God for your faith. And we're asking that you would be filled with all knowledge of his will. Verse 10 is critical. So as, so here's his purpose, so as that you can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And what does it look like to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? He says, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. And so right there in Paul, we see that there is a both a doing right from the get-go, but then also an increasing in knowledge and theological precision that will then improve and better the doing that we're supposed to be doing. So again, being strengthened with all power, verse 12, he gives thanks to the Father who has brought us to receive the inheritance of the saints in light. The Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom, the Son, we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. And so from there, Paul now moves into a time of worshipful description of who this beloved Son is. And so in verse 15, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so verse 15, we see a, a word that should strike us, the word image. And so we see that Christ is the true and exact image of the invisible God. And we know that Paul knows his Old Testament well. And so he's not coming to the climax of redemptive history and using this term image just like it would be used in terms of Adam. This isn't a mere man. Paul knows this, and so he's saying that Jesus is even more true and exact of an image of God because he is God than Adam was. And so continuing, he says he's the firstborn of all creation. Now, this is a, an interesting portion of this verse because if you uh, were in my church creeds and councils class with me, we touched on the first class, uh, the Nicene Creed. And the controversy that brought about that creed to be formed. And so it's this idea of this dude, Arius. Uh, he was a bishop in, in, the, in the church. And so he saw this verse. He read this verse. And so he came to the conclusion that Jesus wasn't God. He wasn't deity, but he was God's first and greatest creation. His kind of common catchphrase was the idea that there was a time when the Son was not. Even though John 1.1 tells us that in the beginning was the Word already. And so this kind of brings up a question that we don't have time to dive into, but the idea of what does it then mean to be biblical? If to be biblical means that we can just point at a verse that proves our point, because if all we do is just look at this one verse, well, Arius has a really good argument. 
So being biblical can't just mean I can find one portion of a verse to prove what I'm trying to say or argue. The idea of being biblical means that we have to then look at the entire witness of Scripture. It's in somewhere the realm of interpretation, and we have to let Scripture interpret Scripture, and we have to use the entire canon of Scripture, and we have to know what canon of Scripture we're talking about. For Protestants, we believe it's the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, that there's not any additional books like the Catholic Apocrypha or or things like that. We are looking at this canon and this canon alone as authoritative. But anyway... That's for another time. And so what does this term firstborn mean? Well, if we're looking at Scripture to interpret Scripture, we see in Psalm 89 that the psalmist is speaking of the Davidic king, and he says this king is firstborn. He is the highest of all kings of the earth. Well, if we know just a general knowledge of world history, know that Israel was not the first nation to have a king. We know that the Davidic or David himself wasn't even the first king of Israel. We know it was Saul. And so this idea of him being firstborn in terms of a temporal reality, well, that can't be the case. That makes no sense in that verse. But him being the highest of the kings of the earth, we see that it's speaking in terms of supremacy. It's speaking in terms of this Davidic king being the highest and greatest and supreme over all creation. And so that's the context it's carrying here is the idea that Christ, he is the image, the true and perfect image. In Hebrews, it says he's the radiance, the exact imprint of his nature, and he is supreme. He is the Lord over all creation. And Paul further proves that this is the correct interpretation in verse 16 when he says for or because. So he's giving the grounds for why he can say what he said in verse 15. For by him, all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And then if he missed anything again, Paul brings it back to all things were created through him and for him. So this is bringing us back again to John 1, that all things were made through this word who is with God the Father. Uh, we see also that all things were through him and for him. And as I was studying this, uh, I was really struck by uh, uh, Murray Harris, who's, I think, currently a teacher at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He, he argued that that idea of for him isn't just simply that it's everything was made for the benefit of Christ. Or even he said that it, everything was made for the glory of Christ, which is true. But he says that it's this, this idea of a telic use, so which means it's kind of the end, the goal, the purpose. And so he argues that Paul is saying even more comprehensively, reality itself exists simply to have Christ as the center. That everything, and you think everything was made, Jupiter, the galaxies upon galaxies upon galaxies, all of this was made with Christ as the center because he is that glorious and even more glorious than we can even imagine. This is why we exist. This is why anything exists. is because it is with Christ as the center and for his glory. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So the idea, again, Paul's driving home the fact that he was before all things. There was, uh, contrary to Arius, like we said, there, were, there was never a time when the Son was not. He always was with the Father. And all things hold together. And that idea of hold together is intriguing. Uh, well, it's important for what we're looking at today because it's in what's called the perfect tense. And so the perfect tense is 
carries this idea that their action was completed in the past, but because of that completed action, it has ongoing kind of consequences and effects that can carry on to the time of the writer and even potentially past the writer. So this idea is that Christ holds and providentially sustains and governs all things. And even after the incarnation, that continues to be true. And so we'll see more of that when we look at Philippians 2, but just kind of keep that in the back of your mind. Continuing, he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And so the breakdown of this passage, you see that he is Lord of creation. Christ is Lord of creation. And now we transition to the fact that he is also the Lord of redemption, that he is preeminent in the work of saving his people, his bride, his body, the church. But he is also the beginning. He is the firstborn, again, using it similarly, the idea that he has supremacy over both creation and the church. He has supremacy, you could put it this way, over creation and new creation, which is what we are in Christ, as we see in 2 Corinthians 5, that he is supreme over both creations that are coming. That way, in everything, he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God, so everything that God is, what God is, Jesus is, and it continues to dwell in him even after his incarnation that the full glory of God dwells in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, he made peace by the blood of his cross. All right, so now we're going to jump to Philippians chapter 2. Here we go. And so Philippians chapter 2, just for some context, Paul is um, speaking of the fact that the church in Philippi should have this humble service, that they should uh, look out for one another's interests even more, in a sense, than they look out for their own interests. And so that's the context that he begins to flow as he talks about Christ's descent and incarnation. And so in verse 5, we read, Have this mind, this mind of humility and humble service among yourselves, which is already yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so in this verse, we see that he was in the form of God. So Paul is poetically arguing that he is God. He's equal with God. He has the same attributes, the same stuff that God has, Jesus has. And then he says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Or if you, so this is a challenging phrase to translate. And if you look in your footnotes, if you have an ESV Bible with you, or if you have the NIV, I think it's a little closer to this rendering, is a thing to be held onto for advantage. And again, this is in the context of humble service, that Christ did not see it beneath his station of being God, being equal with the Father, to then descend to add to himself a human nature for the benefit of redeeming his people. It wasn't beneath him. He loved and enjoyed being a servant. And so, verse 7, he emptied himself. And so this is uh, more in modern circles, this idea that um, by emptying himself, Jesus released some of his divine attributes such as omniscience 
or the fact that he was sustaining the world, and then he simply did all of his mission on earth, or omnipresence, you know, now he's confined to a body. So the, it's the argument is that that emptying was removing divine attributes from himself, and then uh, just simply doing his work, his mission, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, we see grammatically that doesn't make any sense because the adding is then modified by the following phrases. That he, at, or he emptied by adding, by taking to himself a form of a servant. That he was born in the likeness of, uh, of men. And so the, the emptying isn't truly a giving up of the divine. The emptying is that he veiled his divinity in a sense, to then take the form of a servant to come down and to serve us. And then also theologically, we know that God is immutable. He is unchangeable. And so we can't have Christ then giving up divine attributes. That would mean a change in the divine nature, which would then undermine all of our trust in the gospel. Because if our God can change you would think at some point he would reach a time when he's fed up with us and then maybe move on to a new creation. But we praise God that he is steadfast in his love and immutable and unchanging in his love to us. And so, uh, let's see, verse 8. Being found in the form, he humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess to the glory of God the Father. All right, so what does this mean? So we've looked at Colossians 1, we've looked at Philippians 2, we've gathered a lot of scriptural evidence, and so I want to kind of put it all together. If, if I've lost you, I apologize. I know I'm talking fast. Again, my wife's in nursery, and I'm trying to get done at a really reasonable time. Um, so I, I think the best way to kind of frame it in terms of putting what we looked at together with Colossians 1, Philippians 2 is kind of quickly unpacking what were the heresies that the church was dealing with when they were like, okay, we've got to come up with a cohesive grammar to explain this. And so one of them was what was called Apollinarianism. And so what Apollinarius was trying to do was he was trying to protect uh, the deity of Christ. And so what he said is simply that the son only took to himself a human body, just kind of took a shell to himself. There was no human soul that he assumed. And so that may sound super technical, but um, a, a church father who opposed this uh, made this uh, simple statement that is actually really profound. The idea that what was not assumed or what was not taken on in terms of the word becoming flesh is not healed. And so what he means by that is that if Christ did not add to himself a true human nature, body and soul, that when he went to the cross to redeem us as our representative, as our substitute, then he did not redeem the whole of us. Because if all he took was a human body, then he did not fully live out a human life and then redeem the human soul. And so our redemption would be incomplete. So that view was rejected. And so the guy, Nestorian, was trying to protect uh, both the, the, the two natures, the divine and the human, and so his issue was he went too far the other direction and essentially made two persons. So you have the idea of you have the word, God the Son is a person with a human nature, and then you have this man, Jesus, who is a complete individual person. 
But the dilemma of that view was that, one, we don't see like a schizophrenic Jesus. We see one active subject who's living through two natures. We don't see uh, the person, the human, then chatting with the Word, God the Son. So that view was rejected. And then lastly, this idea of kind of Eutychianism is the idea that the divine kind of blended in with the human nature, and you get kind of this kind of typical Hercules demigod blend of the divine and human all mixed together. And so that view was rejected. And so what did the church come to in terms of putting all of this information together? Well, we see again, going back to our sentence analogy, that there is one person. There is one active subject. It is the Word. It is God the Son. It is Jesus who is the subject but we see that he has basically two predicates. He's got two natures that he lives through simultaneously. And again, this is beyond our comprehension in terms of us fully understanding it, but it's the same thing as the Trinity. We can't grasp completely how three persons can exist in one nature in the same way we can't understand how one person can exist in two natures. Uh, once they kind of put this together, they also came up with uh, what's called the extra. And so the extra is what we looked at with Colossians 1, Philippians 2, the idea that when the Son became flesh, when the Son became incarnate, he did not give up anything of his divine nature and attributes. So the Son lived extra outside of his human life, a complete and full divine existence with the Father and the Son. And so uh, I think interesting in regards to that is the idea that when you read through the Gospels, have in the back of your mind the fact that the Son is living a full divine life as he's ministering among us as the man Christ Jesus. So when Mary is giving birth to the Word, it is God the Son along with the Father and the Spirit who is sustaining her and giving her the strength and the energy to push out this beautiful baby boy. When he is... Uh, sitting at the table, the Last Supper with his disciples, it is Jesus, God the Son, with the Father and the Spirit, who is sustaining and providentially giving strength and power to Judas's mind and intellect as he's scheming and devising a plan how to betray his Lord and Savior. As he stood before next to Pilate and the crowds were shouting out, it was God the Son with the Father and the Spirit who was giving them breath in their lungs to scream out, crucify him, crucify him. And when the soldiers were driving the nails through his hands, who is the God, do you think, that was sustaining the strength in their muscles to drive them all the way through? It was God the Son, the Word, along with the Father and the Spirit. So he lives outside of his human nature. He continues to be divine. He continues to be human. So why is theological precision good news? Why does all of this matter, that Jesus is one person, two natures, simultaneously at the same time? Well, it's good news because we have a very precise purpose, that we were made in the image of God. We see that we are to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion. We are to be true representatives of God and his character in this world. But we have a very precise problem that Adam and Eve rebelled, they spat in the face of their creator, they wanted to be gods themselves, and then now they are exiled from the garden and unable of their own power to return. We see that we need new hearts. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 10, God, or Moses, God through Moses says to the Israelites, you must circumcise your hearts. But as you continue in the book of Deuteronomy, we know that Moses basically predicts that the exile would happen, that this stiff-necked and rebellious people would be exiled from the land because they can't give themselves new hearts. And so God in Deuteronomy 30 says that I will then come and give you new hearts. That not just the history of Israel, that's one of failure. We see all of humanity has never lived up. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Humanity always fails in its relationship to God. And so because of all that, that no mere man could stand as our true representative before God, and that is our very precise problem, we needed a very precise and specific person to redeem us. That we needed a redeemer who is both God and man. We needed a redeemer who is God because we needed God to initiate. We needed God to step in. We needed God to do what we clearly showed that we could not do ourselves. But the Redeemer needed to be a man as well because it had to be a man as a true representative, a true substitute that could stand in our place to then be the proper sacrifice, the proper one who gives true obedience, the better Adam, the true Adam in relationship to God. And so we see in Isaiah this this tension is building that the idea that the Old Testament story is showing that it needs to be God and it needs to be man. We see in Isaiah 7, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And we see that's fulfilled in the Gospel of Matthew. The passage just read this morning, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. There's that language of son again. The government shall be upon his shoulders. His name, this son's name, will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. There's our foreshadowing. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. On his throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That it is God who had to step in and it is God who does so through a man, Christ Jesus, who is God himself. Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Isaiah 45, we see in verses 21, Yahweh is talking, the Lord is talking. He says, there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior, that Yahweh is the Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. And what is that word? He says, to me every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance, or every tongue shall confess, which Paul picks up, as we read in Philippians 2, and attributes it to Jesus. Jesus, who is Yahweh, who is God eternal. And he is the word who became flesh and came to be our savior. And so the word, the divine son, assumes to himself a complete human nature 
so that he can be the head, the firstborn of the new creation. So that way he can be supreme, that he can be exalted, that he can be our true representative and truly redeem his people. And to be that, he had to be fully God and fully man. And so who is Jesus? And I got a little bit of time. So I want to end by just reading through what's called the definition of Chalcedon. And so if you were with me in our creeds and councils class, this is just basically the statement that the church put together. It's very brief in terms of how we set the guardrails of speaking of this Redeemer who we've looked at in Colossians 1 and Philippians 2. We read, we then following the Holy Fathers, which they would consider the apostles, and then the early church fathers who passed down what the apostles had given them, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, one person, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man of a reasonable soul and body, so that way he could heal us completely. Consubstantial or of the same stuff uh, with us according to manhood and all things like unto us but without sin. Begotten before all ages of the Father according to his Godhead and in these latter days for us and for our salvation which connects it to the Nicene Creed, he was born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to his manhood. One in the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The distinction of the natures being by no means taken away by the union. The idea simply being that uh, his deity remains all-knowing, all-powerful. His humanity remains limited in knowledge and growing in knowledge and limited in power. So the distinction is not blended together, uh, even though they're united in the person, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring or just existing simultaneously in one person, not parted or divided into two persons, but one in the same Son and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, and the creed, Nicene Creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. So this is who Jesus is. He is the Son, he is the Lord, he is the only begotten, he is both truly God and truly man, so that he could redeem us, his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, Lord, I thank you for such a popular Bible verse, John 3.16. Lord, which we, of course, focus rightly on the fact that we can have eternal life. We focus rightly on the fact that it's because of love that you sent the Son. But Lord, such a powerful verse that even begins to give us uh, the, the thinking, the 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 assumptions of the Trinity, that it is the Father who sends, and the Son, the Son is from the Father. It is the Word who became flesh for us. And Lord, we thank you, Lord, for this beautiful story, this cohesive plan of redemption from beginning to end. Lord, we thank you that Christ was always plan A. 
Lord, we, we ask that you would just convict our hearts of areas where we do not give the Son the honor and the glory he deserves. Lord, we pray that you would help uh, these truths, Lord, that can seem a little technical at times. Help us in our scriptural reading, Lord, when we come to passages where uh, the Son says, I, I don't know the time of my coming. Lord, how do we make sense of him being uh, fully God, who is omniscient and all-knowing, Lord, not knowing something. And so we can understand that that is according to his humanity that he does not know. Uh, Lord, we thank you for this true representative. Lord, we thank you of the intricacies and the precision of this plan of redemption. Lord, that it wasn't just haphazardly thrown together or recklessly done, but Lord, you have decreed a beautiful and intricate story that is so rich and robust, but yet can be explained so simply, as Bill looked at last week. Lord, help us to be just overwhelmed by this truth, by this gospel, by this Savior, by this Redeemer. And may we live and serve and grow and walk in a manner worthy of Him. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.